0: Two weeks ago, a momentous event happened in the city of Warsaw. Some of you probably noticed this. If you didn't, I'm happy to tell you about it, though it is too late for it to do you any good. Two weeks ago on Wednesday, Chick-fil-A brought a truck to Wausau. Uh, they parked in the Festival Foods parking lot and... Regular people like yours truly were able to go and procure food uh, in Wausau from Chick-fil-A. It was a glorious day. It was a great day. It was a negative degree day, Um, and some people, including yours truly, spent around two hours um, outside standing in line to get what was totally worth it, 24 chicken nuggets and two large fries and a sweet tea in the midst of this otherwise glorious day, um, I had uh, one really uncomfortable moment. So I'm standing in this line, and it's, uh, it's moving slow, and I've done all the small talk I can do with the people around me. So at this point, I'm listening to a podcast in one ear, uh, and there are a, guy, a couple guys, a few people ahead of me in the line, uh, that are having a very loud conversation. And um, I'm just going to be honest, um, one, one guy kept saying GD this and GD that, and one guy kept talking about the name of Jesus, but not like he was talking to Jesus, and so I was a little turned off by the conversation because of that. I know I live in a, like a little Christian bubble, but I was, and so that's going on, and then the, the conversation turned to politics, and the only thing better than loudly using the name of God in vain is doing it while you're talking about politics. That was real fun for everyone around, um, and then one of the gentlemen said… Um, they started talking about what was happening in Israel and Gaza. And one of the gentlemen said, um, Well, of course, Israel has a right to defend themselves. And I thought, Okay, that's like the first thing you've said that I agree with. That's great. Um, and then the other gentleman said, Yep, yep, I agree. And then the first gentleman said, And, you know, really, that's because, you know, well, the Holocaust, I mean, they killed like 50, 100 million Jews, and so they really need to defend themselves. And I said, Okay, well, Your math isn't great because they killed six million Jews and there have never been 50 million Jews alive at one time in the history of the world, but your point I'm on board with, right? Your point of the Holocaust was awful, um, I'm truly on board with. And then he said, and I figure since that happened, you know, they can do whatever they want to those kind of people. I mean, I don't care if the Jews killed 10,000 people or 100,000 of those kind of people. You know, it just doesn't really matter to me as long as we don't have to get involved. And I thought, wow, what a comment. What a transition from, wow, the Holocaust was awful, killing lots of people bad, to, oh, but if it's those kinds of people, kill as many as you want. And I mean, honestly, it kind of took my breath away, and I wasn't even sure how to respond. I was ways back, and um, I wasn't talking to these guys, Um, but it just kind of rocked me a little bit. Um, that, you know, Americans would say, hey, we're, we're opposed to the Holocaust unless it's the kind of people we don't like, in which case, 100,000, we don't care. And then I started thinking, um, how often do we do this? How often do we think about those kind of people as fundamentally different from ourselves? Uh, there's, been, there's been a lot of research on the topic of genocide and um, This isn't a sermon on genocide, but just stay with me for a minute. Been a lot of research on the topic of genocide, um, mostly done by Jewish uh, survivors of the Holocaust. And one of the things that they've noted is that the first thing that happens, there's a system to genocide, right? The first thing that happens is always you have to identify who's in what group, right? So uh, in, in Germany during the Holocaust, they had to figure out who are the Jews and who are not the Jews. And that's not always as easy to see as you think, and so and a lot of the Jews and, and uh, the Holocaust had to, before the killing started, they had to wear badges, right, gold stars of David to identify themselves. Uh, this happens really everywhere, the Khmer, Khmer Rouge uh, in Cambodia made people wear scarves, um, and the um, northern part of Bosnia, um, the people who were going to be genocided ended up having to wear white armbands. In uh, and, and Rwanda, they decided the, the Tutsis and the Hutu were the two big people groups there, and the Hutu um, government assigned identification cards so you'd know if you were a Tutsi or a Hutu, because many people didn't know before the identification cards came out which people group they were, so they just had to get assigned one. And it seems like behind all of that is this idea um, that we want to figure out who are my kind of people and who are their kind of people. Uh, I think we do this um, in the big, scary ways. We do it in a lot of smaller ways as well. I think humans have always been tempted to divide ourselves. We divide ourselves along nationality and race and class and gender and politics. We divide ourselves around um, who is Hutu, and who is Tutsi, and who is Jewish, and who is German. We divide ourselves around who is cool and who is not, who's in my group of friends, and who doesn't quite fit into my group of friends. And all of these divisions can have consequences sometimes on a national or global scale, or sometimes they're just personally painful, right? Sometimes those divisions are as simple and as um, difficult as the dividing of a family, I think in this story, Jesus is going to hit on two kinds of division that we're tempted to fall into. One is this division about those kind of people versus us, and the other is this more personal division that happens uh, between me and somebody that I know and love. So I want to talk about those two ideas a little bit this morning as well. I want to start with this idea of of the more personal kind, actually. We're going to change gears, and I want to talk about um, what Jesus says about divorce, so, before we even get into that, let me give a couple of caveats. Jesus is not talking as a pastor to somebody that's going through a divorce, right? Jesus is not talking to, as a pastor to somebody who uh, just found out their spouse has been cheating on them or who uh, is in an abusive relationship. That's not what's happening here, right? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are His, like, you know, kind of His enemies, and they are trying to trick and trap Him. And he wants to point out the flaws and the way they are thinking about what it means to be the people of God. So, the Pharisees ask a question. They say, to test him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus um, does as He often does. He flips the question into a question. He says, well, um, what has Moses commanded you about this? So, the the Pharisees are saying, hey, what are our rights? Like, what are we allowed to do? And this uh, is um, a question that I think makes Jesus a little bit uncomfortable. So, He says, all right, well, what did Moses command you? And they go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the same passage we read this morning, and they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. So, uh, this is… A a, a wild and interesting story in uh, sort of the the Jewish history, but at the time of Jesus, there is a roaring debate about Deuteronomy 24, and particularly about one phrase that we read. So, in Deuteronomy 24, it says, um, if a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him, um, uh, literally it says she does not find favor in his eyes, because he finds something objectionable about her, so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of His house. So, the debate that was happening in the time of Jesus was, what does something objectionable mean? What does something objectionable mean? Uh, so, there were some rabbis, more, maybe on the more conservative side, that said, oh, that just means if she has an affair, right? Like, it has a hard uh, limit. If, if she has an affair, it's legitimate to have a divorce, Okay. There were other people at the time of Jesus, um, other rabbis, famous rabbis, who said, um, no, um, something objectionable could be really anything that you object to. If she makes dinner and dinner doesn't taste good, you could divorce her uh, because I object the dinner was bad. Um, They say, um, some of these rabbis say, um, you might object to the fact that some other woman is prettier than her. And you might divorce her because there's a prettier woman out there, and she should have been as pretty as that woman, right? And so, in the midst of this debate, Jesus um, says, hey, you know what, I'm not really interested in being drawn into uh, this conversation. And in fact, um, I think Jesus might say, boy, there's some pretty important figures missing in this story. So, uh, the question they ask is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what about the wife? can the wife divorce her husband? What about the children? Like, what happens to the children in this marriage, right? So, Jesus says, what does Moses say? They go to Deuteronomy 24, and they want to focus on the husband's rights, not the woman's rights, not the children's rights, just the husband's rights. And I think Jesus says, hey, guys, this is a bad question, We've talked before about bad questions, right? Good questions are questions seeking understanding. Bad questions are questions trying to avoid understanding. I think Jesus says this is a bad question, and um, it's a bad use of Scripture. Remember what Jesus said, what did Moses command you? They go to Deuteronomy. Jesus says, you've gone to the wrong passage of Moses. Let me take you somewhere else in Moses. Let's go to Genesis. Genesis is a book of Moses. And in Genesis, God said um, that He made us male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says, um, hey, you are looking to figure out How you can maximize your rights to separate from anybody you want to separate from. And I want you to think about this differently. I want you to think about this idea that God designed us to be united, God designed us to be in community. God designed us because He knew it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so He gave us options like marriage that bring us together in these sacred and special ways. Moses says, What therefore? I'm sorry, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, what is man to separate what God has joined? I think Jesus' point here is not that we can never, ever, ever get divorced. I think Jesus' point is that this is a conversation that should be about our calling to togetherness and not our options for division." I think Jesus wants the disciples to understand that a piece of paper given by a human cannot negate a spiritual reality defined by God. That getting rid of your wife because you are powerful and you, she is not, and you met a prettier woman, does not negate the reality that you are united to her by God and in God's eyes. And by the way, just as a piece of paper given by a human cannot negate a spiritual reality defined by God, so too a piece of paper saying that you are a Tutsi instead of a Hutu in no way impacts your identity or changes who you are in God's eyes or in the eyes of those who are trying to follow God. Jesus wants the people to begin to recognize um, that The the life that He calls us to is not a life that seeks the privilege of division, but the privilege of unity, right? Unity at cost, unity at cost. I I came across a a great story um, that I had never heard before um, about a guy named uh, Bob Pardo. Um, Bob Pardo is a famous uh, pilot, and he is famous for a maneuver called Pardo's Push. Um, I'm going to put up. We just put up that first picture of Bob Pardo for me. Just leave that up for a minute. Um, this is Bob much later in his life, um, but uh, the date is March 10th, 1967. Uh, he is at this time 33 years old. He and um, his wingmen and their two weapons specialists are flying F-4 Phantoms. They are going into uh, North Vietnam to attack a steel mill north of Hanoi. Several other American fighter jets already had finished their runs. There are hundreds of anti-aircraft batteries blasting at these planes trying to shoot them out of the sky. Uh, And as they got closer, uh, the F-4 flying next to Captain Pardo, piloted by one of his friends, was hit, uh, right in the belly, he says. And fuel starts streaming out of that F-4, and so the pilot pulls away from the mission. Uh, But Bob manages to finish his run. His jet is slightly damaged, but they complete their strike on the steel mill. Uh, And then both planes turn, climb to 20,000 feet, and start heading for their base um, outside of Vietnam and Thailand. Uh, As they begin to fly, it becomes clear that the first plane, the more damaged plane, is not going to make it it's losing fuel at a crazy rate. Uh, There was no way they're going to get safely back to their base or even to a refueling plane, Uh, and that everyone knew to bail out over the rice paddies of North Vietnam meant almost certain death for an American pilot. So, Bob Pardo radios his friend. His name is Earl Amon. He says, Amon, drop your tail hook. So, a, a tail hook, um, I'm not a plane expert, okay, but a, a tail hook is this um, metal cable, um, um, me- metal uh, uh, stick, if you will, uh, that sticks out the back of your plane. You use it to, when you land on an aircraft carrier, it catches the rope, right, so that you can stop your plane in time. So, he, he drops his tail hook, and now it's hanging out from the back of his plane, uh, and Captain Pardo then pulls his jet underneath and puts the tip of the tailhook against the frame of the cockpit windshield at 300 miles per hour. The first lieutenant who was in the rear seat of Amman's jet was named Robert Huden, and Robert says uh, that if Bob had so much as bumped the windshield, that tailhook would have been in his face. We're talking about glass. It was phenomenal flying, nothing less. At the time of doing this, Captain Pardo didn't know that an airborne push had been accomplished once before during the Korean War, and it was so dangerous the U.S. military had ordered pilots to refrain from ever attempting such moves again. But later on, after he was told that, Bob said, how can you fly off and leave someone you just fought a battle with? The thought never occurred to me. Uh, Later on, Bob said about every 30 seconds, turbulence caused The tail hook to shake loose, and he had to fight to get it back in place. Um, Amon's fighter, the one he's pushing, is soon out of fuel, but the added thrust from Bob's plane gets them both going towards the Laotian border. Uh, Eventually, the left engine on Bob's plane catches fire. He shuts it off. He turns it back on. It catches fire again. The two planes are losing altitude about 2,000 feet per minute. They cross the border into Laos at 6,000 feet. Amon and Hutton in the first plane bailed out. Pardo then ordered his airmen in the rear seat to bail out. Um, Pardo kept with his plane for a few more seconds, then dropped by parachute with the others into Laos. villagers opened fire. The airmen scrambled into high grass to hide. Um, About two hours later, two U.S. helicopters arrived to make the rescues, and Bob was the last one to be located and brought home." Just an amazing story, right? These are pictures of Bob later in life. I come back to this line: How can you fly off and leave someone you just fought a battle with? The thought never occurred to me. I think this is the message that Jesus has for his disciples, right? Hey, like, we're involved and this incredible adventure and struggle that is life together. And we're supposed to be doing this together. We're supposed to be a team. We're supposed to be a family. We're supposed to be united. And boy, when you've been through the war together, how can you imagine coming apart? Bob literally risked his life and his co-pilot's life to stay literally together, right, for the sake of His friend, Jesus doesn't just risk His life. Jesus gives it up completely in order to bring people together into one family under Him. So, when we are tempted in any place in our life to say, hey, here's an opportunity to get rid of this friend that really bugs me because they're always difficult to deal with and I'm so tired of it, or hey, this is a chance to get rid of um, this um, client that just is really hard to work with, and we are tempted to, to divide and separate from our brother or our sister that we have never gotten along with as well as we wanted. In all of those places, Jesus says, hey, maybe that's not the vision of God for you. Right? Maybe that temptation to division is in contrast to what I want you to do and what I'm going to do for you. Maybe You're called to be joined together by God and not separated. Jesus goes from a conversation about divorce and this personal separation to a conversation about children. Super interesting. Um, We talked a little bit last week about children in the ancient world, and I said to you uh, that in the ancient world, especially for the Greeks and for the Romans, children are really considered to be the lowest category of human. So you have, you know, uh, men of your culture. Then you have women of your culture and men of other cultures. Then you have slaves and children at the bottom, right, of this sort of pyramid of humanity. And in the ancient world, uh, the Jews had certainly a better perspective on the value and life of children than uh, the Greeks and the Romans did. But even in the Jewish world, um, they didn't name their children for the first eight days, right? Because they don't know if their child's going to survive that long and um, there's this sense that, hey, we don't want to risk being connected to this person that might not make it. But in the Greco-Roman world, it's wildly different. In the world that Mark is writing to, right, Mark is writing his gospel to non-Jewish Christians, the world that Mark is writing to, they see children as, as disposable, in fact, there was a, a very well-known practice called exposure, right? Exposure was simply what a parent did when they had a child they didn't want. Now, if you had a child that you didn't want, uh, you would take that child and you would take them somewhere outside. Sometimes uh, if you were really kind to the doorstep of another person, um, sometimes if you were not as kind just to, uh, you know, a, a dump or a dunghill, and you just leave the child there and walk away. This is um, so common, in fact, we have letters written from um, husbands to their wives, um, their wives who are pregnant, saying, hey, when the baby is born, I won't be able to be there. But if the baby is a boy, let's keep it. If the baby is a girl, let's get rid of it. This idea of um, exposing your child, of just abandoning your child, was so pervasive because they didn't see children as people. Um, they weren't our kind of people, they were those kind of people, right? They were the least important version of human. And those abandoned children uh, left on doorsteps or at dumps or on dunghills most often died. Sometimes they were rescued, right? but when they were rescued that was usually just to become slaves of someone. This happened often enough that John Ortberg says um, from this era of human history, we have literally hundreds of versions of the Greek name Corpus. Um, oh, sorry, kopros, uh, the Greek name kopros, which is just Greek for dung, right? Hundreds of versions of kids named dung. When the disciples see the children coming to Jesus and they say, Whoa, 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 get out of here. Parents, what do you think you're doing? They're saying, Hey, we're not as bad as the Greeks and the Romans, um, but we don't think they are worthy of being with Jesus. They're not our kind of people, they're those kind of people. And when Jesus is indignant, and Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for to such as these to the kingdom of God belongs. Jesus is not simply saying, hey, kids are cute. Jesus is saying, hey, these people that you think of as the least human, that you think of as those kind of people, they're actually my kind of people, right? They're my kind of people. Now, there's a, a wonderful book called When Children Became People, uh, and it talks about this transition that happens in the Roman Empire, and it happens entirely because of the Christian movement. So, Christians begin to um, embrace this wild teaching of Jesus, uh, even Gentile Christians, that children are, are humans and not just things that we have until they grow up a little bit. Uh, and so, um, these new Gentile Christians who give their life to Jesus start noticing that their children abandoned all around them, and they start adopting them. They don't adopt them to be slaves. They adopt them to be their children, Uh, and most of them are girls. And so, all of a sudden, there's this generation of new Christian women that are growing up in these Christian homes, Uh, and when these women come of age, and they're beautiful, and they're um, wise, and they're kind, there's all these Greek and Roman men that want to marry them, and their parents say, sure, if you give your life to Jesus… Uh, then you can marry my daughter, right? Uh, and and the, the spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire um, accelerates, and eventually it's Christians that lead to the abolition of the practice of exposure and abortion. It's Christians. Uh, it's a Christian emperor who uh, abolishes the practice It's Christians who invent orphanages, who establish the idea of godparents, who humanize children for the world. And so, um, last week we had this great line where Jesus is talking to the disciples and He says um, again about children whoever wants to be first of all must be last and servant of all. And He took a little child and He put it among them and He took it in His arms and He said, whoever welcomes one such child in My name welcomes Me. Whoever welcomes Me welcomes not Me but the One who sent Me. And we stop calling those kids kopros. We stop calling them dung. We start calling them son and daughter and little Christ. And the Christian authors of this day write letters that say, all babies are glorious before God. We are so tempted in our world to divide. There's so many great reasons to divide. Um, We divide families, and we divide nations, and we divide peoples. We say, hey, my friends are full, there's no room for more. We say, hey, you're not my kind of person. It's so easy to find something objectionable about someone else, isn't it? You don't even have to look that hard to find it most of the time. But Jesus suggests there's a different way. Um, I, I mentioned uh, last week or two weeks ago a story of one of my favorite stories from the great divorce. Um, one more great divorce story. So, in the, in the beginning of the great divorce, this guy shows up in this shadow world. The shadow world is hell. Hell okay? Uh, And he knows where he is, and he's not happy to be there, but he thinks, at least I'll get to meet some famous people, right? I'm in hell. I'm going to go see Napoleon. Like, I'd love to have coffee with Napoleon and hear about, you know, what that was like being Napoleon. Uh, And he begins to talk to people, and he says, actually, you can't because the longer someone is here, um, the more they start dividing themselves from everyone else. You see, what happens is they they just pick fights, They just pick fights over and over again about little things and little things. And because in hell you can keep spreading out as far as you want, um, by this time Napoleon is so far away from everyone he's ever known and ever met because he just can't stand to be with them anymore that he is thoroughly and completely alone. And in fact, if you were to start heading towards Him now, um, no matter how long you walked to get there, you'd never reach it because all He wants to do is keep getting more and more and more alone. He's going to keep moving away from you and away from everyone else. John Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. Um, Lewis says, um, hell is the absence of other people, right? And the absence of God. Heaven is where we are united with God and with each other. Heaven is where those who God has joined together, no one separates, sons and daughters and husbands and wives and friends and family. God is in the business of bringing people together. Our enemy is in the business of tempting us to division. But follow Jesus, for He will lead us not into temptation. Thanks be to God.